Psalm 8, Book of Common Prayer, translated by Miles Coverdale. O Lord, our Governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world, thou that hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of very babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. For I will consider thy heavens, even the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him lower than the angels, to crown him with glory and worship. Thou makest him to have dominion of the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the fields, the fowls of the air and the fishes of the sea, and whatsoever walketh through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world. Welcome to the Psalms with me, James Delingpole. And I'm really looking forward to talking about Psalm 8 with Paul Sutton. Welcome to the Psalms, Paul. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul, um, I've done very little research, as is my wont. Tell me about yourself. Well, I think even if you had researched, you, you wouldn't be able to find that much. I'm just a, a humble Church of England curate, at least for a little while longer. And uh, so that means I'm a kind of at the last stage of my training to be a, a Church of England vicar. Uh, working down in Exeter, at St Leonard's Exeter, and um, before that, lived in London for about 10 years. Right, OK. So, it, I imagine that it must be quite difficult being a, 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 a curate, and would-be vicar, in the Church of England at the moment. Well, I mean, I, the, I, the, these rules apply to all churches, by the way. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. sure that Roman Catholic priests have a similar problem. But if you're one of those old-fashioned... Um, Christians who believes in God and the Bible isn't that <laughs> a little sort of Christian. barrier to entry well let's hope not I mean I, I don't think it is uh, I think on the one hand you're right There's, the Church of England has fumbled all kinds of things over quite a long time and yeah. it's looking like fumbling more and more uh, those who are optimistic about the C of E want to say well actually it's still got a totally solid biblical basis you know it does believe in god and at least in theory everyone has to sign up to that uh, and much more uh, but i think you're right if you're a bit more pessimistic pessimistic about it which i certainly am then yeah you do look around and think okay there's so much good that is going on in this and i imagine far more good than either you or i will ever actually see because it just happens in the background where you don't spot it but yeah it does feel like uh, there's some some serious crumbling at the foundations I'll tell you what the Church of England has got, and you can't take that away from it. It's got the liturgy. It's got the Book of Common Prayer. Oh, pianist. And, and we're going to be talking about... Call me, call me old-fashioned, call me biased, but I think my favourite versions of most of the Psalms are the, the Coverdale translation, which is used in the Book of Common Prayer. Oh, I'm interested you say that because um, obviously in previous Psalms episodes you've you've gone with the KJV and I've always thought, oh James, you know you're you're somewhat traditionalist, but what about Coverdale? So I'm I'm pleased to hear that you're you're a Coverdale fan as well. Oh, well, I'll tell you the story behind that, Paul. It's I've been 
with with Christianity as with everything else, I've been on this massive journey in the last three years. Yeah. And I'm learning stuff all the time. So I originally thought, well, the King James version is is the thing because it's King James and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's the Bible that one reads if one is a uh, an Anglican. Um and then I realised that no, there is a there is an older. I mean, Miles Coverdale's translation predates the King James version by what about 60, 60 years? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, certainly from what I know, the a lot of the psalms that picked up in the King James version were they were kind of just redrafts of what Coverdale had done. In the same way that, to be honest, most of the King James version of the Bible was just subtle redrafts. It went through various edits before it sort of reached its final. 1611 form. Um, so, but yeah, like, yeah, Coverdale's there. Absolutely, well, right at the beginning. So we've got this, we're, we're going to do the, um, the Coverdale version, which, which begins, um, O Lord, our governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world. The KJV goes for O Lord, our Lord, I think, which is quite yeah, yeah, tricky, yeah. isn't it? Does it have, I take it it's got the capital letters for the first Lord and then the uh, just regular upper, you know, uppercase and then lowercase for the second lord because they're different words in the original, and you know that I, you must know whenever it's a capital L, you know the whole thing in all capitals that's signifying God's personal name, whatever Jehovah as it used to be called, Yahweh as sometimes people call it now. So it's distinguishing between those two two things. And the second one, O Lord, our Lord, as you say, is, is something more like governor or ruler. I wondered if you'd go for it, though, because was, it always makes me chuckle when it says, oh, Lord, our governor. It's kind of, you know, you don't hear the word governor apart from in a sort of Del Boy scenario. It's, it's exactly that. It's, well, it's, 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 I, I, it makes me think of Minder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Governor. Exactly. Oh, Lord, our governor. He's, yeah. It's like cab drivers call you governor occasionally. Old-fashioned cab drivers. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, Gov. Exactly. So you've gone for that one then, have you? I'm just going to desperately check whether they haven't mistranslated yeah. any other bits. Oh, Lord, I governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world. The, I'm glad you, you, you volunteered to do this psalm, Paul, because this has been sitting in my, um, my in-tray, waiting for somebody to do Psalm 8 with me. And it's one of my favourites, because inter alia, it's the psalm that justifies my fox hunting. Um, yeah, you said the, this. <laughs> the, because it's, it's clear to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, reading the Bible and reading the Psalms particularly, which I've been doing now fairly solidly for, for a year or so, and I realise that the biblical version of the world, the, the, thing that the, Bible enjoin, the things that the Bible enjoins us to do, often clash greatly with the with the kind of the way we're tra- we've been trained to think about the world now yeah, yeah. The, on everything from feminism to animal rights to gay marriage these are things that are are really inimical to what the bible tells us um people right. don't like, like that like you said at the start you know it is difficult being a kind of just basic just basic classic christian uh in the Church of England today, because you think these things are just sort of obvious if you're a Bible reader. Okay, they're, they're still challenging, and there's not, I'm not saying it's easy to grapple with it, and there are hard questions about it all, but yeah, it, that, I think that's the point where you feel things are increasingly out of step with what 
what Christians have always believed, not just what the Bible says. But uh, you know, we're, there are still many people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Yeah, well, well, luckily. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so take, take me take me through the the the, the psalm because you're you're obviously as fond of it as I am. Well, it's a psalm about hierarchy when you when you just trace through the whole thing. The whole thing is about who's in charge of what and who's where in the pecking order, for want of a better word of it. So it starts off by speaking of the Lord, our governor, our Lord. Uh, and I think it's not just incidental that it says our Lord. It's saying governor, it's saying ruler, to underline the fact that the Lord really is, in fact, in charge of everything. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Sorry, I haven't got Coverdale, but I've only got, I've got the King James one. You have set your glory above the heavens. So that's the kind of anchor point for the whole thing, that the Lord, who, as we'll find out later in the psalm, made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, is is so gloriously, majestically in authority over all these things that his glory is above the heavens. He's, he's sort of, he's very much not out of the picture of the hierarchy of the world, but he, he's right at the top of it, unimpeachably, unimpeachably, un questionably at the, the top of the tree as it should be he made it all he sustains it all every moment and so it starts off by professing how majestic the lord's name is uh, anchoring the kind of structure pecking order of the world in that and then it bizarrely kind of flicks all the way to what we feel is kind of the it's not necessarily the bottom of the pile because because we know that babies are not actually the bottom of the pile they're, they're the bottom of our pile in a way um, but it immediately flicks to talking about babies and infants uh, out of whose mouth God has established strength now we'll come back to that verse at the end because I think that's the verse which is sort of most puzzling in a way but it makes it makes sense I'm glad you said that things. Paul because it puzzles me out of the mouths of very babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength I mean I sort of get it but I, I, I'm glad you're going to talk about it later well sort of get it is always good enough I mean uh, the more, the more I read the Bible, at least, the more I just think, on a good day, I sort of get it. And there's a kind of infinite pool to play in. But it's important that we can get it to some extent. And I th- I'll make a proposal, at least, for what, I, for what I think, why I think that verse is there. Then it goes on in, verse, in the third verse to talk about um, kind of the real nub of why the psalmist is writing this psalm, which is that when you look around you in the world, in the universe, it does feel like we're we're not at the top of the tree. It feels like we're in a, some, some, something of a subordinate position. And that's true looking at the heaven, the physical heavens, the skies, um, which are described as the works of thy fingers, which I find just a lovely little detail that it, it speaks later on about the works of God's hands. But the heavens are described as the works of his fingers, as if he's sort of, you know, just casually flicked them into place. It speaks about the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. By the way, when it talks in the Genesis chapter 1 creation account about the stars, um, the stars are, are, are truly a throwaway. So it speaks about the other things that God created. And then it just says, and also the stars. It's just literally in one, one word in Hebrew, and the stars. And obviously the more we discover astronomically about the universe and the stars, the more we're like, hang on, that's not a small part of what God made. You know, If anything, we're a small part of God made, what, what God made. And I think it's precisely that sense of the greatness the expanse, the above usness of the stars, which is what the psalmist is meditating on. Because that's where it gets to in, in the fourth verse. What is man that thou art mindful of him? 
and the Son of Man that thou visitest him. Now, I think, I, I just think this is a familiar feeling to all of us. And it's part of the reason why people, I think this is true of very religious people. And it's also true of people who are trying to want, run away from their religiousness, I think. Is people love being going out into nature and they, they climb up to the top of some tour on Dartmoor and they, you know, they camp wild camp in, you know, the wilderness of Patagonia somewhere so that they can see the stars. Well, why do people want to do that? Because because it puts us into a context which we find I don't know, both comforting and unsettling. And people people will truly live for that. You'll often come across people who who will talk about how, you know, hiking is my religion and the wilderness is my religion. And in a sense, they're right to, because coming across the, the might of the universe and nature is something of a transcendent experience, or at least it puts us in touch with something that is greater and bigger than ourselves. Um, yes, I'm thinking there, actually, of, of the romantics, of the, romant, the romant, romantic movement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you think of, of um, well, Thoreau, and uh, and the, the German romantics, and you think of the the paintings of Caspar David Friedrich, and you think of our own romantics, and it's all about this search for the sublime. Yeah, that's exactly which, what I was going to say. Which is the sort of the terror and magnificence of nature. Except they sort of made. Na- I mean, I think this was the the beginning or, or 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 part of the process towards this sort of new paganism that we've got today. I'm not. I'm not convinced that the Romantics were were much interested in God. They sort of deified nature, don't you think? Oh, definitely. And I think that's why what the, what the Psalmist is doing is a much richer reflection on nature than just that desire for a kind of generic encounter with the sublime. Because, well, ultimately. You know, if that's the best you've got, some some sort of neurons firing that makes you feel like you're small or important or a strange combination of both, and that's kind of the best you've got. What the psalmist is doing is way more radical than that, or just way more insightful than that, because it's not even talking about us in contrast with you know the size of nature. It's not even talking about us in in contrast with God. It's specifically talking about us in contrast with the angels. So that's what it says in verse 4 and 5. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him lower than the angels to crown him with glory and worship. And uh, it's not just that bit there that's talking about angels, because when it says about the stars in verse 3, within the biblical picture of the sort of symbol world of the Bible, the angels and the stars are pretty closely linked for kind of for obvious reasons, that there's a host of them for a start, an innumerable host. They're above us, they're in heaven. You know, the things that are in the physical heavens, i.e. the sky, the space, God has designed them to be symbolic of the things that are in his, um, the heaven that he created as his sort of, the dwelling place of the angels and all that stuff. That's why when the scriptures talk about God's throne room, it has a blue floor, uh, which we think, that's just bizarre. Why does it talk about having a sapphire floor? Well, all of the little details that, that, are, that are seen in those visions of God's dwelling place, they're kind of sky-related details. And the stars that populate physical sky and the angels that, that populate God's heaven are sort of, they're meant to be symbolically drawn together. In other words, the psalmist looks on a night sky, presumably without any light pollution in those days, and sees this innumerable host, which you really couldn't count, and uh, obviously they, they could only see a tiny fraction of the stars that actually exist. 
it look, looks on that, that innumerable host and is rightly reminded of the angelic host. And obviously, people have had various beliefs about angels throughout all of history, but the psalmist is, is writing about angels and the stars, connecting them together, because he feels the same thing about both, which is, what, what are we compared to those things? What are we compared to the innumerable lofty stars far you know, the ancients weren't stupid. They realized that the stars were massive because they realized they were impossibly far away. They possibly didn't go quite how far away or how massive they are, but they realized that the stars were both massive and innumerable and, to all intents and purposes, changeless because they just were the same from generation to generation. They look at the stars and think, we are nothing compared to that. And knowing as they did that angels exist, they kind of felt the same thing about them and then they connected them together and felt... Oh. It's almost a kind of moment of... The psalm is really almost reflecting on the, the sort of angst. That's an anachronistic word, but the angst of feeling um, that we're, we're very small. We're, where, where do we fit into this hierarchy? If God is at the top, it looks like we're certainly not in place number two. What, what do you think? Um, I, think in, I think in the KJV um, it says um, uh, a little lower than the angels rather than lower than the angels. But... but Thou madest him lower than the angels to crown him with glory and worship. So, what it's saying that God made made man to be inferior to angels, and nevertheless, is is, is that is that the sort of the, the missing word which we have to understand? Nevertheless, to crown him with glory and worship is. Well, we'll come to that because um, I think it's exactly that question which the writer of the book of Hebrews exploits. So the writer of the book of Hebrews throughout the whole book is reflecting on various themes or passages from the Old Testament and generally the way in which he's doing that, nobody, I mean it says in the KJV that Hebrews are written by Timothy uh, traditionally people believed it was written by the Apostle Paul I think most people today say we don't really know who it was written by um, but whoever it was, was reflecting on the Old Testament and saying, hang on this doesn't quite make sense. Like, what, what's actually going on here? And realizing that basically, if you plug the answer Jesus into these things, then it, it gives you some answers. But we'll come back to that in a minute, because um, I guess we have to kind of got to grapple with the fact that this is randomly talking about angels. I mean, do you think people? Do you think most people? Do you think your listenership is generally on board with angels? Yes, with a lot totally. Of two, two, two of my two of my um, uh, listeners have seen angels, to my knowledge. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. W one of them, one of them was made of sort of bright yellow light. In fact, th they were listening to my, one of my podcasts with Dick, and she turned to her. Uh, we were talking about Christianity, and she turned to her husband and said, "Sort of, where are you on this?" And he said some sort of husband-like answer. And she looked in the corner of the room, and there was this the, an angel standing there, bright yellow light, and she she was at pains to assure me that she was neither drunk nor stoned at the time. It was just, it, just, it was there, the yeah, angel. Yeah. Um, another one saw um, an angel, but it was grey. It was like sitting on, it was standing on, the, on, on a roof and it was, it was protecting her from something. Yeah. So yeah, I think people are on board. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to see an angel. I, I, I totally believe <laughs> that they do exist. Well, <laughs> maybe one day. And I, th I guess the thing about angels is, you know, actually, a lot of people who don't yet believe in God do believe in angels. So when they do the surveys and, and look into, you know, people's beliefs and stuff, 
about a third of people in Britain claim to believe in angels, which I was, I'm actually surprised at how low that is. I'd have thought all people would, but there you go. But it, that's, that's often higher than the people in the same surveys who will say they believe in God. Even more disturbingly, people will say, you know, more people will say that they, they believe in the devil than they believe in God. And um, it's interesting, I, I can't remember, it was a long time ago someone was on your podcast, a number of people actually, I think, who've basically felt like over the last few years, they've become so convinced of the existence of a, malev- a malevolent spiritual power, they've kind of thought, well, look, hang on a second, if, if there is a malevolent spiritual power, there must be one that's a, a good one that is greater, and, you know, have come to some belief in God as a result of that. I think, that, I think that's a kind of reasonable route to believe in God. Yeah, I think it's a logical assumption. And I think angels are a, a kind of logical... So, so, some of the kind of tr- Christian tradition has sort of reasoned towards angels existing by saying, we know that there are things that are alive and material, you know, us and cats and blades of grass and stuff, and we know that, we, that there are things that are material but aren't alive. Well, doesn't that imply that there must be something which is alive but not material? And, uh, I mean, that's just one of the, the various different angles people have come to to, to say that um, angels exist. And to be honest, the most convincing one is just the sheer weight of testimony about it. You know, you've just said you've spoken to two people. Um, like, I can think of loads of people I've spoken to who have obviously sometimes implausibly and sometimes presumably just wishful thinking or falsely, but there's so much reporting of it that you think, you know, how, how many people are you going to disbelieve in, in order to sort of maintain an anti-supernaturalism? The answer well, is, is often a lot. Isn't it kind of key to being a, a Christian? I mean, look, if you're going to be a Christian, surely you should take the Bible seriously. It's not, it's not just a collection of stories. It's, this stuff is real. And if you're, going to, if, you're going to, if you're going to believe in this super powerful deity, creator of all, all things, uh, but you can't see him, but he's everywhere, and, and he can just flick his fingers and the stars can be created and, and things like yeah. that. It's not exactly a stretch to think that he, he, he created a few angels in the process. And also, you, you've got... I mean, isn't that the nature of, the, of, 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 our, of our existence, that, that we've got this earthly existence, and then we've got going on simultaneously this, this, this war between the fallen angels and... The, the heavenly hosts, the ones who are still up there. I mean, that's not that, that's not stuff that's been invented since the Bible. That's in the Bible, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that this stuff is so obvious to you because uh, I think lots of people would just think, hang on a second, but I think you're absolutely right. And there is a kind of, right at the beginning, of the, the very first verse of the Bible where it says, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I think there's a good case to be made for what, it then goes on to say, and the earth was formless and void. I think it's a good case to be made to say that, you know, it's almost like that, the whole story of the heavens, which we know starts there in, in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1, it begins there and then it sort of dips into our story at various points. But we really by no means know the whole story of, of what's gone on in, in the kind of heavenly part of God's history. And um, some bits we have to sort of um, deduce about it, I suppose. And... Some people don't like that. They, they kind of want to say, well, I, I'm willing to go with the bits that are here in black and white, but I don't want to make the deductions. Um, and so, for example, people don't... Um, yeah, they'll say, well, it, it never says really clearly in the Bible why the demons fell, so the demons are, are the evil angels, and it's clear that they are angels who in some way fell away from their their sort of original dwelling, as, it's, as it says in Jude verse 6. So 
it, people people don't like to do the deductions, but we kind of have to because we've the Bible is talking about our story, you know, the world of the, the, the story of the earth and the history of humanity, and insofar as that intersects with the history of the angelic spiritual world, like we've got little glimpses of it, but we only have glimpses. And I find it really interesting to think that in a, it's quite plausible that the angels only have glimpses of our world as well, because um, it says in I think it's in uh, one Peter, maybe it's two Peter, about how the angels long to look into these things, these things being about Jesus, as if in some ways they, they don't like have all the information about it. We we kind of long sometimes to look into the angel thing. He said he wanted, you'd love to see an angel, and uh, they kind of look into our world with almost the same uh, intrigue that they've they've got little bits of the pieces of the story, um, but not the whole thing. Now I think there's I don't don't think it's quite um, symmetrical in that because. Um, in some ways, the, this, well, this is kind of what Psalm 8 is ultimately about, that the story of what is going on with humanity is actually a more important story than what's going on with the angels. And, uh, well, some of the angels, I, I take it, don't like that, and they're the angels that became demons. That's a good, that's a really interesting point, because it does rather explain, I mean, if, if, if you believe as... Um, it tells us in is it two Corinthians that, that that the devil is the god of this world, and the devil is essentially a, a, one of the fallen angels, isn't he? I mean that's 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 kind of the deal. Um, if that is the deal, then it does explain why, for example, the ruling elites do terrible things like torture and murder children because they want to affront God, because they want to get at God for creating man in his image, and they resent it. And so the best way to get at us is to, is to engineer these horrible, horrible acts which, which, which must, must hurt God greatly. Well, absolutely. The, the fallen angels are almost defined by their hatred for humanity, obviously as, a, as an expression of their hatred for God. Um, there's a really interesting section... In, of all sources, the Quran about this, um, where uh, this is the Quran's telling telling the story about Satan's rebellion, um, and it, it talks about how this is in, uh, in the voice of God. We created mankind, then fashioned you, then told the angels, fall prostrate before Adam, and they fell prostrate, all save Iblis, which is their name for Satan, who is not one of those who make prostration. Allah said. What hindered thee that thou didst not fall prostrate when I bade thee? Iblis said, I am better than him. Thou createst me of fire, while him thou didst create of mud. And I, I to be clear, I don't think that's, I don't think what's said there is precisely true. In fact, I think it's explicitly false, because um, it, it posits that God told all of the angels to fall prostrate before Adam. Whereas we read in Psalm 8, that uh, humanity was made a little lower than the angels, or for a little while lower than, however you want to take it, that in, its, in humanity's original state, we were lower than the angels. And um, that's precisely why the psalmist has this angst or puzzlement, really, about, well, if we're lower than the angels, then in what sense have you crowned us with glory and honour, and in what sense are all things under our feet? And, you know, as much as I think what, what the Quran's saying there is explicitly false, um, it's nevertheless talking about a, a pretty plausible theory of why the angels fell, which is 
um, it was revealed to them by God that, that they were going to worship one of these like dust mite creatures that they'd just seen made. To, to whom, you know, for the extraordinary... I mean, the, the angels, from what we can see of them in the scriptures, are enormously different from us, enormously powerful. Their intellect is greater than any human being. You know, they obviously can move instantaneously. They, they can do loads of stuff that we just think of as, well, literally godlike, because obviously many people have worshipped angels as gods. They seem to have loads of wings as well. I mean, loads, loads of wings. <laughs> Confusing yeah, numbers right. of wings. Yeah, like the, the seraphim that are uh, revealed in uh, well, various places, but in Isaiah chapter uh, 6 in particular, talks, it talks about how they have wings that cover their faces. They have six wings in total, two of them to keep them uh, kind of keep them afloat, so to speak, and uh, four of them to cover various body parts. And Yeah, within the Bible, there are various different categories of angel that are revealed. Um, and there's been disagreement throughout the history of the church about that. But um, yeah, certainly the cherubim and the seraphim, the thrones, angels and archangels, and then a few in between um, that, that sort of di dispute about where they fall in the hierarchy and stuff. But yeah, even the angels themselves are created hierarchically among themselves. Yeah, actually, as a digression, and, and this is kind of... <laughs> I don't like upsetting Catholics, but where are you on the St. Michael prayer, for example? You know, the, 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 the St. Michael prayer, was, which is written by one of the popes in the 19th century, I think, because he recognised how bad things were getting, and he felt that, that he needed to enlist the support of, of the Archangel, Archangel Michael. Um, but, I mean, we tend not to do that in the... In the Protestants in the don't pray to Michael, that's definitely right. Yeah, I um, I was also reading about the uh, St. Michael prayer recently. I um, I think it recognises something accurate about the world, which is that there is a spiritual a, a spiritual clash going on in the background of everything. We know from from the Bible that Michael is somebody who disputed with the devil, and uh, so presumably you know is a, a powerful one among the angels because the devil Satan is. A, a particularly powerful, the, the, the leader of the fallen angels. So he must be, yeah, he's powerful and, uh, you know, presumably hasn't gone into retirement, presumably still involved in the spiritual battle in some way. Uh, he's the general. I mean, he's, I mean, I mean he's, he's in command of the heaven, heavenly host. I yeah, mean, obviously yeah, yeah. subordinate to God, but, but God, I suppose, is, the, is, is what? The supreme, supreme commander. And yeah. he would be... Something like something under that. I mean, it's hard to say because within the angelic hierarchy, as traditionally conceived, the highest of the angels are the ones that are basically just purely devoted to God. They're just like in his presence. They've got all the wings to kind of cover them so that they're, you know, decent before him. But they're, they're, they're kind of not really interested in the things of the world or its, or its battles. So that's the cherubim and the seraphim and the thrones. Um, so in some ways, they're higher and, they, and they're, they're regarded as higher because... Surely, like the closer to God you are, the the higher in the pecking order you must be, kind of thing. But yeah, certainly among the, among those angels who are directly involved in the world's affairs, which uh, traditionally understood would be um, the principalities, the archangels and and the angels. Yeah, Michael seems to be well. He's one of the only two uh, angels whose name we know from the Bible, alongside Gabriel. Uh, obviously, Catholics have um, Raphael from there because they have extra books in their Bible. Um, but yeah, where am I on, on the St. Michael prayer? I th like I'm saying, I think it recognises something which is often overlooked about the world, which is that there is a spiritual battle going on in it, that the angels are actually the helpers of uh, God's people. Like it says in Psalm 34, I think, that uh, 
the angel of the Lord encamps around the saints. And, um, you know, that that is actually literally true. So there's a absolutely bizarre passage in Two Kings where um, the Syrians are attacking the people of Israel and uh, Elisha is the kind of great prophet at that time. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. It's just like one of those crazy moments where it just sort of, I mean, in this case, literally opens the guy's eyes and he sees what's actually going on in the world, which is that, you know, presumably you could have just walked through those hills and had no idea of what was going on. But it turned out that, you know, not just in a metaphorical sense, but in some actual real sense, angels were encamped in order to protect and defend God's people. So yeah, so far as the Sir Michael prayer like kind of recognizes that, like good idea. Obviously, as a, as a Protestant, I'm I don't really see the need to pray either to saints or to angels um, because we have this extraordinary access to God through Jesus Christ. And you know, I think it's quite right. I was praying only the other day for that God would protect, well, in this case, the, my church and my family and stuff by means of his angels because that feels like an appropriate thing to pray and, and maybe that's what is meant by the uh, St. Michael prayer I guess I'm kind of like maybe maybe it comes to a point where you're sort of splitting hairs and saying look we're, we're praying the angels will protect us that's a good idea yeah yeah I I, I, I think that um, you're bang on about that that scene with, with, uh, Elisha you say was, was the Elisha prophet. in 2 Kings 6 yeah yeah I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that that is how it is um, I'm not sure whether you need to take DMT or some sort of other psychotropic to be able to see this this other world, but I think there's no question that there's the seen and the unseen, and that there's that that angels are all around us, and they sometimes take visible visible form, and that sometimes they take human form. I think I think sometimes we meet people who are actually angels in disguise, and then oh, yeah, this is like. I mean, it's in the Bible. It's a very strong kind of thread in Jewish tradition, which is a motivation for hospitality, which is, you know, you, you really don't know whether this stranger that you show hospitality to is in fact an angel. And, um, yeah, like, I don't think that's just a kind of whimsical thing. Obviously, it's based on the fact that Abraham actually did show hospitality and it turned out it was angels. But, um, you know, that's saying, right. Yeah, that, that's a real thing. Crazy, crazy to think it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So, so, um, what's that? What's that? Um, Wim Wenders film, the um, in in Berlin with the angels. Oh, I'm like a film illiterate. I've honestly no idea. It's really good. It's got it's got lots of angels in it. Okay, <laughs> okay, you sold it to me. Really. <laughs> um, I'll I'll look it up. Hang on, you, you keep keep going. Keep, tell tell me more stuff, and I look it up. Tell you more stuff about the about the angels. Um, oh, it's called Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire, and this yeah. is about angels in Berlin. With right. Bruno Gantz, who's, who's, yeah, he's great, he's, he's, he's a good angel. It's, 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 and it's, do you know what, it's unlike, unlike so much, at the risk of digressing here, which I love doing anyway, 
I, so, I was hoping you'd digress. It's good. I was watching um, over Christmas with my with my boys. We were watching um, a film I'd never seen before called Scent of a Woman. You, you know that one? It won Oscars for, for Al Pacino. Okay. And I was put off by the title. I just thought, oh, it's so kind of icky. The yeah. whole idea of a film called Scent of a Woman, but it's about it's about a about a kind of maverick lieutenant colonel who's uh, in the U.S. Army uh, for who for various complicated reasons is where he's gone blind um, and and he's a, he's a difficult character and, and he does his thing and he and he and he, he teams up with this this boy from this ritzy private school and. Uh, they go on this jaunt over Thanksgiving to New York in which they learn from each other and stuff and, and the boy at the, the Ritzy private school has got problems which are resolved in the, in the final scene with the, with the help of this, of this blind, fiery but essentially decent, decent military man. And it's got some good bits in it but I just, I'm at the stage in, in, in my understanding of the world now where I think that Hollywood is manipulative, schmaltzy, dishonest and, and, and that film being in the Oscar winning character is definitely schmaltzy and ultimately dishonest in what it tells, you know, the, 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 the setup at the end at the, at, the, at the private school, it would never happen. It, it, so the, the film, the resolution of, of, of the film is based on a premise that, that, that is unimaginable because it wouldn't happen in, 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 the, in the private system. It's just like, it's just, mm. it's just made up crap to, to, to tug at the heartstrings and to get a sort of satisfying resolution. Anyway, I'd say that um, that Vim Vendors film is not like that. It's like, I, I increasingly I find myself drawn to art movies because art movies do not manipulate you quite so shamelessly as, 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 as mainstream Hollywood films do. Well, uh, and film is such an incredibly effective medium. I mean, I, like I say, I, I'm basically a film illustrator. I very rarely watch films. But when I do, I'm always like, this, is, this has got the power to shape your whole yes. desires and thinking of world, which is, I mean, like why it's such an amazingly um, influential and effective uh, art form, but also therefore a battleground. You know, the, the, the stories that are going to be told in Hollywood in whatever other you know uh, output of, of movies they're not going to be stories which tell this deep rich truth about the world that they're not God made it that jesus rules it that angels you know that kind of stuff it has to play on those themes because otherwise it would be boring like the only the real world where god actually rules and heroes uh actually suffer and die and then win rise rise again like harry potter um, you know, only those stories are actually good stories because they're the story that God has actually woven into the world. But so how oh, Harry Potter is satanic, though. <laughs> you must realise that. Do you know, I'm starting to be... Uh, it's one of those things which I, I just desperately don't want to have to recognise because, um, on the one hand, you know, it is a fundamentally Christian story in terms of the, the final outcome is the, the defeat of evil by good... Uh, particularly through through the hero losing his life essentially and yet at the same time it sort of it, it mainstreams things where like if your child was actually going to uh a school of witchcraft and wizardry that would be a fundamentally bad thing you know and i think it makes these things into of course like fiction it's fine to have magic and fiction 
I, one can't be too, you know, puritanical about it, much as I, you know, I'm inclined to be puritanical. But I don't time, know, Paul. I, I, you're going to go all in on Harry Potter. Yes, I, 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 I think I, I'm, I find myself increasingly of the view of all those, those much-mocked Americans in, in, in the mid Midwest who believe that rock music is evil and that Hollywood <laughs> is satanic and you, you keep the kids away from this stuff. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, this, that it, it would be possible to do so, but I think they, I think they do have a point. The, the, the entertainment industry is controlled by the enemy, and that's the enemy with a capital E as well. It, all of it. All of it. Yeah, and I think that's what I was trying to say about film as a medium, which is it has such an enormous power to tell people true stories. It has to tell true-ish true stories because they're the only good stories because they're true. And yet, yeah, like it, it, it's fundamentally not leading people into the actual finally true story, the kind of eucatastrophe as Tolkien called it, which, which underlies all the rest of it, which is the story of God making the world, saving sinners by sending his son, all the rest of that stuff. By uh, the way, yeah. I must give a change the subject totally. Where are you on the sort of the cosmology because it, of, of, of the Bible as against the one we're, we're taught by scientists. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can tell where I'm coming from on this one. But, for example, the, the Bible talks about sort of waters above us as well. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that the heavens are as described to us by astronomers. I think that, I, I, I suspect that the Bible's closer to it. <laughs> you want to have, go back to those medieval heavens. Um, oh, I, well, I, well, biblical heavens is what I'm after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, I mean, obviously there, there is water above us. Like that's, what, that's what the clouds are. And when there's a lot of clouds of, above us, there is, there's a lot of water above us. I, what's more interesting to me is that in, the, in, the, in Genesis it talks about the, the springs of the great deep as well as if there's a lot of water below us and somehow that water is involved in the flood and all that, you know, the things yes. that you read about in the scriptures and you're like, oh goodness, I really don't know how this matches with any of what mainstream, and that, when I say mainstream, I mean unbelieving science says about this. I'm not quite sure how to grapple with all those things and put them together. I, I mean, I do think I believe in... Um, you know, that space is this vast expanse, you know, with billions of light years and the closest star is several light years away and, you know, that there are however many hundreds of billions of stars out there and some of them we can't see. I, 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 do, I don't think, like the medievals thought, that the sky really was like a series of transparent domes on, on which various um, planets and stuff moved. What they said was not false in that it was phenomenologically an accurate largely accurate description of you know what they could see above them but I, I don't think you have to choose between them I don't think that you have to say well either either you've got a biblical heavens the expanse of the heavens and the the kind of vault of the heavens or you've got outer space with millions of light years and you know supernovas and stuff it's just like no no, no they, they, they can totally fit together maybe there's a bit that I'm missing which you, you, you can I think I think all the supernova stuff and all that black holes I think it's just all made up stuff no black holes <laughs> to, to yeah it's designed to sort of reify space as a thing and I, I, i'm not sure I'm, I'm i'm i believe in all that <laughs> space but is anyway it doesn't it, uh, as you say 
it's totally not it's totally not essential. So I, I, maybe we should we should get back to the same. Get back to Psalm eight. This has made, been all, yeah, off the side. Made us in love the angels to crown them with glory and worship. So that is the that's the nub of the, the kind of puzzle of this psalm. Really, is well, if it's if it said that we're lower than the angels, then why does it immediately follow by saying to crown him with glory and worship, yeah. with glory and honor? Um, it then goes to explain about the position of humanity in relation to everything else. Thou makest him to have dominion over the work of thy hands. Thou put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you think, hang on a second. We've just seen in a couple of verses previously, talking about the, the moon and the stars as the work of thy fingers. And now it says, you made him to ha- makest him to, thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Well, presumably, like, it's not making a hard distinction between the fingers and the hands. It's saying humanity was made to have dominion over the work of God's hands. And then even more explicitly, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Obviously, it's going to expand upon that and say all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, um, foxes and the like, fowls of the air, fishes the of the fowls sea. Fowls of the air and the fishes of the sea, and whatsoever <laughs> walketh through the paths of the seas. I, I love that phrase, the fishes of the sea. Fishes rather than fish. That's why you yes. go with Coverdale. You see, you see Coverdale <laughs> was, that's, because we, we, when I was at prep school, we sang these psalms and say so these, these phrases get you're very reluctant to sing these songs when you're when you're eight or nine because they're just like dirges and, you, and then this yeah, old yeah, yeah. language don't know what they're doing but but now it's there in my head forever the fowls of the air and the fishes of the sea yeah, like i remember singing uh, that one about bringing his bringing his sheaves with him so what does that even mean but at the end of some song it stuck with me all those all those years later oh Sorry, don't no. get me started on that there's that george herbert song that one sang the one about who something something through thy laws makes that in oh, the action yes. fine and you think um, what what is this crazy stuff but I think about that I think about that poem like most days now now that it's stuck in my head um, because it's saying you know who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that in the action fine it's just such a lovely and just affirming poem of ordinary work because what does it what does it mean though who sweeps the room as for thy laws makes that in the action fine. Right, what's it called? We're going to look it up. It's, uh, uh, it's called The Elixir by George Herbert. Yeah. So we're now well off the, off the side. We're now we're nicely walk. off piste, which is the way I like it. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a poem about the fact that there is a tincture. So it's using a lot of um, kind of alchemical terms. Um, there's a tincture which, can, which actually can turn everything to gold. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. Not rudely as a beast to run into an action, but still to make thee prepossessed and give it his perfection. And this is where it comes a bit more obvious, I think. A man that looks on glass, on it may stay his eye, or if he pleaseth, through it pass, and then the heaven a spy. So that's saying, um, you, you can just look at a piece of glass, you can focus on that, but it's designed to be a window to uh, higher and greater things. All may of thee partake. Nothing can be so mean which with his tincture, and here is the tincture, here's the thing which, which changes it, for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. So it's saying there that that's the kind of magic medicine that, that can turn everything into something that's clean and worthwhile. And then he begins to apply that into just ordinary life. So a servant with this clause makes drudgery divine who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. So it's just saying, and this is, you know, often 
it's an encouragement to me when I'm doing drudgery things, encouragement to my wife when she's just, you know, changing yet another nappy and all that kind of thing, which is that actually God has made it so that doing things for him and you know, obedience to him, whether they are of value, you know, whether they contribute to the GDP, whether they feel particularly satisfying to us or not, are of massive value to before him. They're pleasing to him. And that's why the final verse, this is the famous stone that turneth all to gold, for that which God doth touch and own cannot be left for less be told. So it's just saying um, what it says in various places in the New Testament, Colossians 3 and stuff, which is that even the work of a slave, a Christian slave, doing what they're, what they're told by their master, however tedious and degrading it might be, um, they are storing up treasure in heaven by doing those things. And, and Herbert, in his great genius, has realised that, you know, that's quite a... The alchemy thing works quite well to, to sort of pick out the way that actually those things are, are profoundly valuable to God. And, yeah. Before we go back to Psalm 8, uh, I, I would recommend a book to you. And actually, I recommend it to all, all viewers and listeners. Um, it's a book called Music at Midnight. And it's a critical biography of George Herbert, who is, who is arguably, I mean, sort of certainly one of the greatest poets in the English language. And, and particularly if you're a Christian, I mean, he's our greatest Christian poet. I mean, he, he, was, he, he, he wrote for God. And he wrote, he, he, he wrote poems worthy, worthy of his, of his love. Um, and this book is, is a critical biography, so it, so it takes you through the poems and really explains them. Um, including, including yeah, yeah. the the elixir. Um, I'd really recommend it. The, my only problem with that book is that even though the author is a is a former dean of Christ Church, you know, a man of the cloth, he actually buys into evolutionary theory. I think he 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 keeps he keeps sort of making these sort of slightly dismissive comments about about George Herbert's worldview. Yeah, it's yeah. his seventeenth-century worldview, which of course we've grown out of all that now, and we don't we don't quite believe in. And I'm thinking, hang on, this is what's gone wrong with the church. You've got men of the cloth in the Church of England who don't actually believe that God created the world. Right, and it is just like the most basic creedal thing that you know. The very beginning yeah. of the creed says, "I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth." Of all things visible and invisible. If, if you don't believe in God made the world and you don't believe that in angels and stuff, well, that's like basic creedal Christianity. And, okay, I, you know, exactly how that played out at what time in history, I don't think that's at the very core of any kind of creed questions within Christianity. But, um, I don't know. I, yes, I, I also find it hard to be patient with, with that. I mean, do you think, do you think technically... You can, I mean, given that the creed is a sort of affirmation of what, of what the, the, the tenets of the faith, do you think technically you can even be a Christian if you don't believe that God created the world? Well, immediately you start thinking of special cases and like people with very profound learning difficulties who have, God has somehow reached out to them and they basically know the name Jesus... And smile about that, and they, you know, right. So, so people who sort of, <laughs> sort of who've got who are mentally impaired, yeah, okay, fine. But, but, but I mean, more, I'm talking about generally. I'm talking about vicars and bishops and things. <laughs> Those people shouldn't become bishops. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you on that. Yeah, um, I'll, bet, I'll, I'll bet they're the ones most likely to become bishops. I bet it's almost a barrier to entry if you actually believe in. Well, certainly, it certainly is a barrier to entry 
you know, in the higher echelons of the Church of England, the more you, the more you really seriously believe in the stuff that is kind of obviously there in the creed and in the Bible. I mean, like technically, in the Church of England, although they've watered this down over the decades, clergy do have to sign up that they believe in the Christian faith, and as it's expressed in the Bible, in the creeds, and the historic formularies, bear witness to it and stuff. So, but there is a kind of um, basis. There is, you know, there's meant to be a basis to it. But it used to be that you had to say, I believe in everything that, you know, in the 39 articles, right down to the, the death penalty and all that kind of stuff. Whereas now, I don't think we're... we're uh, oh, what's the death penalty for? Well, just in the 39 articles, which is the kind of, the kind of confessional basis of the Church of England, um, whenever someone says, oh, I, I believe in the 39 articles, I always say, do you believe in the death penalty? Because Article 36 or something specifies that that's why the magistrate has the sword, so that it can, uh, you know, put to death wrongdoers and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Don't tell me you're not a good Anglican, James. I'm, clearly, clearly <laughs> I'm not. I'm clearly I'm not. Uh, I, I was just wondering sure what, what, what the accepted... Um, do, do, do the 39 articles stipulate what, what merits capital punishment? Oh, I don't think so, no. That's odd, though. I thought, I thought isn't, isn't the deal thou shalt not kill? Isn't the deal that, that God... God takes care of that. Well, you or I definitely shouldn't kill people. Um, no. And uh, I, I think what it's affirming is the belief in the Bible, in the Christian tradition, that um, some people have been given the right to take life where it's warranted to well, be taken. Well, but is, is that, does, that, does the Bible say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it speaks about how... Um, you know, people who shed blood, or by man their blood should be shed. Obviously, in the Old Testament, many things are, are assigned a capital um, right. penalty. Even in the New Testament, it speaks about how the magistrate bears the sword. And I assume it says sword rather than, you know, keys to prison for a reason. I mean, <laughs> it's not so that they can kind of give them a slap with it. Like, it is saying that there's a legitimacy, God has given a legitimacy to execute his judgment on people to certain... Um, certain government figures and magistrates and stuff. Now, again, like obviously, the, the classic objection to that is, well, what if people get executed wrongly? To which the answer is, well, God sees that too. You know, he's he he knows it all. He puts it all right. He's the only final just judge. Um, look, I'm not. Don't hear me making a, a strong plea for the Church of England to return to its confessional roots and have more capital punishment. I, you know, we've got to be realistic about where we are and and the arguments about the abuse of capital punishment and stuff. I, I'm sort of wise to that, but the point I'm making is more just people who sign up to the, 30, the 39 articles, do they even realise that's what they're signing up to? Yes, I was thinking he will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Um, that's the bit in Psalm 37 when when the, the, the ungodly are constantly trying to slay the, slay the righteous. Yeah. And so, yeah, God... Um, we're getting now to my. We've got now actually to my favourite bit, which are, which are, which is the one that that explicitly says that we are in charge of the animals. And I remember having an argument about this with some typical Church of England vicar at a, at a lunch, who was saying, "Yes, we 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 have rather modified our language since since man was given dominion over the animals. We now say we we, we now prefer the word stewardship." 
And I was thinking, oh, this is exactly what is wrong with the Church of England. You know, this, this, this wet notion that somehow, somehow, oh, we got the translation wrong. And, and, and actually, Psalm 8 wasn't telling us that the hierarchy. It, was, it wasn't being as explicit as we think it is. And actually, our, our understanding of the Bible should be tempered by modern environmentalism, whatever. Well, I, yes, I mean, I think I, I do believe that mankind has been given dominion over all of creation. And we'll come back to when I, when I say all, I really do mean all, including the angels. And make sure we don't miss that because that's kind of the nub of the whole thing. Oh, right. But, um, uh, but yeah, it, it speaks here openly about all the things which in Genesis 1 and 2 are entrusted to the man to be, to rule and to have dominion over and to. Um, subdue which includes sheep and oxen well obviously sheep and oxen by definition are subdued they're domesticated they're, you know animals that have been appropriated to human use but it's also true that we have dominion over the beasts of the field things that seem untamable whatsoever walketh through the paths of the sea you know, all of them are assigned to be under humanity's dominion that humanity that dominion does involve care but it doesn't involve a kind of sentimental care i'm always struck by it. there's a proverb in the book of Proverbs, it says, The righteous cares for the needs of his animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And um, obviously, we, we know from the rest of the Bible that righteous people who care for the needs of their animals also kill their animals, because eating, killing to eat animals is a totally legitimate thing to do. That's part of what they've been given to us to, for. And, um, you know, nowhere, at least nowhere after Noah in the Bible can, is there really a case to be made that you know it's, it's wrong to eat meat but it is definitely wrong to be wantonly cruel to animals and um, well, we all know that intuitively whenever you read the, the kind of early life backstory of serial killers and stuff um, they tend to start off with acts of gratuitous cruelty to animals and um, I you know on the one hand you've got those deliberately torturing animals for the sake of sheer pleasure. On the other hand, you've got righteous people, you know, thankfully slaughtering the lamb that they've cared for, uh, for the needs of their family, using every bit of it uh, with a grateful heart, turning it into a, you know, sheepskin rug as well as eating the meat and boiling the bones for broth and stuff. You know, th those, are the, those are the two poles of, like, right treatment of our animals. Um, there are, and then there are things that fall in the middle of that and I think one of the best testimonies really to the, the kind of people you'd have a better, better exp personal experience of this the kind of people who go fox hunting are people who are generally care for the needs of their animals they're not actually who people not they only love, love, they love their horses obviously they love the hounds but this is what so many people don't get they love the fox as well they respect the fox. The fox is, is yes, he's, he's, he's the quarry and the adversary to, to, to a degree, but he's also the thing that makes everything thing possible. And we, we, we call him Charlie, you know, because we want to personify him because he's, a, he's as much a part of, 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 of this, this ritual as, as the rest of us. Um, and I think the other thing that people don't get about fox hunting, they really should. I mean, anyone who is squeamish about foxes being killed should be appalled at the, at the things that would happen if fox hunting didn't happen, which is essentially they get shot. 
And the problem with, with shooting foxes is A, it's indiscriminate. You kill healthy foxes and young foxes and old foxes alike without, without discrimination. But also it doesn't discriminate... Uh, it, the, 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 um, with fox hunting, the fox almost always gets away. I mean, if it's healthy, it will get away because foxes are more cunning than a pack of pack of hounds. They 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 right. they'll run you around the, the houses, but they will run the around the, the the fields. But they won't. They'll get away. It's only when they are they are sick or old, when they are actually much more of a menace, because then they tend to predate on on lambs and things, on on, on chickens, on things that are easy yeah. that easier to kill if you're if you're old or sick. Um, so there's a sort of I, I see animal sentiment. I mean, like feminism, uh, and like gay rights, and like transgenderism. Now, all these movements are actually whatever they say on the surface. They're really about undermining the Bible, undermining biblical biblical values. So the feminist movement tries to teach you that that men and women are the same, which which they're clearly not. They, we have delineated roles in the, in the Bible. It's very clear about that, and, and the fact that we've lost so much of these, so many elements of these roles, I think, is is why our society is so sick. And in the same in the same way, that the whole kind of animal rights and vegetarian movements, and worse, the vegan movements, have completely muddied the waters. And what I like about those lines in Psalm eight is. You're right. They don't enjoin man to, yeah, you can treat mystery animals because you're the boss. They they just set out the deal, clearly. Yeah. The... Yeah, and it's not. Um, yeah, I, I I think if you're seriously concerned about cruel treatment of animals, then the very few, as you said, weakened foxes that may or may not get tracked down by dogs is really the least of your concerns I mean what you have to do is watch one video about battery farming and you kind of think hang on a second what's the real big problem with with uh, the with treatment of animals in, in the western world I, I don't think it's a few guys not, not compared with child trafficking or yeah yeah uh, precisely with the things that matter that that are actually sacred uh, in a way that clearly you know it, it's legitimate to take the life of um of animals for basically quite a lot of different reasons like you know if you're hungry you can you can take the life of animal but it's it's never legitimate outside of certain very narrowly justified circumstances to take the life of another human being you know whether they're a child or an unborn child or, or any any adult so you know it, it does it definitely seems like there's a kind of inversion as you as you, maybe this is what you're trying to get at that you end up valuing animals more than human beings and trying to put them on a level together. And Psalm 8 is trying to say, you know, there is actually a, an order, a pecking order to, to, to creation, which is a good thing. God, the creator, outside of it, all at the top. The animals underneath humanity, and then in the middle, to come, well, let's come back to this thing about humans and angels, because I think this is the, the nub of the psalm. In the middle, you've got this question of, where is our place in it? We know it's above the animals. Well, some people, as you said, don't know that. Um, but in reality, unless you're going to live a very odd life, as a matter of fact, you do recognise that we're, um, we are over the animals and have, are able to use them for our benefit and stuff. The question is, if angels seem so much more, so much greater than us and so much, you know, more powerful and literally above us and they can do things we can't do, then why can, why does it say what it says in 
the middle of the psalm about Thou madest him lower than the angels to crown him with glory and worship. Thou makest him to have dominion of the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under thy, under his feet. And that, let me just come to what the writer to Hebrews says about that passage because ah, it, it, when I first saw this it blew my mind. It says... For unto the angels, I'm giving you KJV because, you know, yeah. I know you like that. Unto the angels hath he not put in, in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour, and did set him over the works of thy hands. And here's the comment on it. Uh, sorry, here, the, the one more bit. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Here's the comment. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So it's making the same observation we've just been making, which is, hang on a second, there seems to be a tension between this little lower than the angels and the, the fact that it's saying everything is under the uh, authority of humanity. Then it says, but, we, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. And I think that the thing which just I'd never quite seen before until I was meditating on this psalm is that the psalm actually makes sense when you realise that, okay, not, not in totality, but, but in its sort of prototype of Jesus Christ who has actually been exalted above all things, humanity has now found its proper and, and intended place higher in the hierarchy than the angels. That's why I think the Quran, although it's, uh, the way that it expresses it is wrong, is, is onto something when it's talking about what, why it was that the angels fell. Because God was saying, perhaps, as I speculate, that God was revealing to the angels, this little dust creature, you are going to worship one of these. And that's, that seems absurd. And yet it was precisely what Jesus Christ was and is and did. You know, when God became a man, he became the object of the angels' worship. But he was a baby, and he was a man, crucified on a cross. And now, okay, has been crowned with glory and honour, having been risen from, raised from the dead and, and uh, ascended into heaven. Like, yeah, right, he, he really does have glory and honour now. And we, we see that. We see now that already he is exalted above the angels. But it's, the psalmist is still musing on that way back 1000 BC or whenever this was written. Um, we're kind of not musing on that. We're able to see with a greater clarity, yeah, it's correct to say that everything in creation, including the angels, is subordinate to humanity, or at least at this point, to one man. And, you know, it's, it's only in and connected to that one man that the rest of us are kind of above the angels. Because, you know, they're, they're infinitely more powerful all the rest of it than, than we are. But they worship a man. And that's why I said at the start that you know we've got the story of the heavens and the story of the earth, and they're not symmetrical because the story of man is a more important story than the story of angels, because God became a man. I mean, it says it again in that same section in Hebrews, it says um, uh, that surely it's not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of spring of Abraham. He didn't become a, an angel; He became a human being. And that is the more you meditate on that, the more you think. Whoa, okay, God's, God's story is, you wouldn't make it up. It's absolutely wild, and yet um, that's how it is. It is wild, isn't it? Yeah. 
and I like your, your phrase, that's how it is, because, <laughs> because I think a lot of people, even people who consider themselves Christians, don't really grasp how clear some of the things that the Bible tells us are. They, they sort of almost dare not believe this stuff, or, or, they, or, they, they, or, or rather, I think, I think it's it maybe worse than that. They've been so corrupted by our culture, by the lies of our culture that we're taught to undermine the truth of, of Christianity, that, that they, they can't sort of fully subscribe to the Christian vision. But, but subscribing to it in some measure is the essence of being a Christian. And I think, you know, that's the, the, the kind of phrase that's attributed to the devil. I don't think this is actually in Milton, but it's um, picked up in Milton's famous phrase about Satan, um, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Yeah. Uh, the demon's kind of motto is non serviam, I will not serve. And um, in some ways, that is the motto of everyone who, you know, hears of Jesus Christ and just says, not serving him, not a crucified God. That's ridiculous. You know that that's that's contemptible. It's foolishness. Um, it's a stumbling block. That, that's come on. I'm not serving that. And you know, I'm afraid. I'm not afraid. Just not afraid. That's the wrong way to put it. But I'm afraid that's how it is. Actually, God really has exalted that one who was crucified. Uh, he's exalted into the highest place. And. You know, that's not just a kind of to own the angels because, you know, they rebelled against God, so let's get, get back at them. Why did God become a man? He didn't do it just, just so that he could score points against the angels. He became a man in order to redeem fallen humanity. And um, that's, just, well, that's just a glory. Which, which, is, which is remarkable, because, and it, and it is expressed... Uh, in in that that psalm, that that line we said, you know, what is man that thou art mindful of, or the son of man that thou visitest him, and it's it's like us, really, right. we are, you know, we are God's favourites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to kind of commit to some kind of human exceptionalism, and like this psalm totally underwrites that. It's not it's not an exceptionalism that's like. Okay, we're, we're the we're the top dogs of everything because the whole thing is framed. I mean, literally framed in the psalm, top and bottom, by how majestic is your name, thy name, in all the earth. God's above all these things, but within the created order, humanity, although for a little while is lower than the angels, is it, its final destiny is to be is to be higher than the angels. And um, you know, in Philippians chapter two, it's talking about I just never quite noticed before why it is the reason that is given for why Jesus was exalted to the highest place. It talks about how um, he was humbled and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that's that's what he did. And then it says, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's, when it says every tongue, it means... Uh, every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So we're back to this idea of the angels and the demons. Every one of them is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That is to say that he's God, that he's you know been exalted. But why has he been exalted? He's been exalted because he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. I just think, how is that not good news? That God actually, like, why would God do all this stuff? Like He only did it because he loved 
because he loved people who were unlovable. And um, I don't know, I, you know, obviously it's easy for us to say this as Christians, but we ought to be thinking, why would anybody not accept this? Like, this is the answer to every, every question and every puzzle, or at least it promises a final answer to every question and puzzle. Well, that's kind of part of our mission, isn't it, Paul? Certainly uh, is. It certainly it, is. You know, I mean, it's obvious to us, but there's lots of people out there to whom it ain't obvious, and I'm kind of, yeah. I've got this, I've got this policy, the, the don't frighten the horses policy. You know, I, don't, I don't want to come on too strong, but I just want people to know. I mean, may, maybe just having a, having a chat about Psalms is a, is a sort of way of introducing some of these concepts without ramming them down people's throat, because there's nothing worse, is there, than somebody coming on to you too strong with their particular message. I mean, it used to freak me out. The, the Christians used <laughs> well, to Well, yeah, me out. I know, and yeah, it's, it's a sort of occupational hazard, I guess. Um, it is. I just wanted to, I think this is really germane to this discussion, and I'm not going to, I can't see my finding another psalm where it really works, but I think this is a really important point I want to make, because what I said about feminism, and what I said about transgenderism, what I said about all these movements, as I said, they're not really what they say, say they're about. Underneath, they're about something fundamentally satanic, I, I, I believe. They're all rather, I mean, okay, maybe satanic's too strong a word, but anti, anti-biblical, anti, anti-God ultimately, anti-Gods, anti-the hierarchy that is so explicitly described in Psalm 8. And this, and this is really um, interesting. Um, So you, you probably know, I, I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Watermelons about the environmental um, movement. And I discovered on the way somebody called Julian Simon, who was known, he was an economist, he was known as the doomslayer because he was constantly disproving all those all those predictions of doom that that, that, that the sort of the Malthusians were coming up with about scarcity of resources and how we were running out of time and, and blah blah blah. Good. But uh, he noticed um, a shift in the way that books about um, animals um, changed from a kind of a biblical hierarchical one, like the one outlined in Psalm 8, uh, to a sort of new environmentalist, sort of stroke ecologist view of the world, where man was just one creature among any, uh, among many, and we were really no better than a virus or a bacteria or, or whatever. And I just wanted to, uh, yes, here we are. Um, I would, I would say at the top of my head, like, but, it, but it's better if I read it, because it's... Um, uh, according to Simon, it was that the environmental movement had taken on the qualities of a secular religion to which any form of dissent, however grounded in fact, was, was viewed as an abominable heresy. Conventionally, in religious tradition, nature had been seen as something that God had created for man. In the new green religion, said Simon, man was no longer at the centre of things. And this is a quote from Simon. Ecology teaches us that humankind is not the centre of human life, the centre the center of life on the planet. 
ecology has taught us that the whole earth is part of our body and that we must learn to respect it as we respect life, the whales, the seals, the forests, the seas. So many people have imbibed this stuff unaware that what they are, what they are accepting is a, an explicitly anti-Christian view of the world. Simon traced this dramatic shift in attitude by comparing old and new scientific textbooks. In the past, he noted, the descriptions of many birds included evaluations of their effects on humanity in general and on farmers in particular. A bird that helped agriculture was more highly valued than a bird which harmed it. By contrast, the current textbooks often evaluate humankind for its effect upon the birds rather than vice versa. In the old religion, the human species was enjoined to be fruitful and multiply. Under the terms of the new one, it was little more than a cancer for nature. But the old one, Simon argued, had it right. Yeah. Right. And that anyway. is, you know, I 100% agree with that. And that is the story that is told with such power by all of those Attenborough documentaries. You know, as much as I love watching the clips of those, um, you know, fish eating a bird or whatever it is with my kids the the message of the documentaries is that humanity is a scourge and you know if we stopped interfering and stopped doing whatever we do wrong or in you know various habitats then we we wouldn't be destroying these precious animals human habitats and on the one hand it's not like a totally irredeemable idea for some of the reasons we've already talked about with to do with cruelty and also to do with the fact that um there is a Christian insight or impulse underlying it, which is that animals, they go about doing their stuff, killing each other, eating each other, wiping each other out. And we don't talk about like a genocide of the termites or whatever, because that's just what they do. Mm. Um, you know, whereas we actually could be morally culpable for the way that we treat the environment or, or you know, animals or something like that. I'm not saying that we are, but we, we at least in theory could be. And um, often, you know, there are undoubtedly practices which which are culpable um but it's getting it right you, you can't actually hold that that difference between humanity and the animals and say that human genocides are like actually really bad which for the record they are uh, you can't actually say that unless you're positing some kind of human exceptionalism and some kind of accountability above humanity you can only do those things if you are at least at the very least some kind of theist and the only kind of true theist that there is given that the only true god is father son and holy spirit is christianity so you know deeply it is only christian theistic impulses which which underwrite a, a true even our even our most twisted instincts about the environment are underwritten by christian assumptions isn't it i'm, I'm thinking particularly now of 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 my my audience which is uh, um sort of people who've, who would define as awake or have gone down the rabbit hole. Or, yeah, heretics, who, heretics. Who are, who are red-pilled. And I think that some of them, at least, would have problems with the very notion of hierarchy because they would say, well, of course, it's, it's kings and queens and, and potentates who are running the world on lines which are not in our interests and they don't care about us and why should we submit to their authority and I, I sort of sympathise with that in the same way there's a scene in Paradise Lost where where Satan 
is describing the setup in heaven, and he, he talks he talks disparagingly about warbled hymns. You know, that, that's what that's mm. what they do in heaven. It's just yeah, um, So, I, I, what am I saying here? I, I'm, I'm saying that that the, the, there is within us, those of us who've seen what what damage is being done to us by the the ruling elites and how little they care for us and how thoroughly immersed in evil they are. It's hard for people then to then go, yeah, but but God is God is quite clear that He wants hierarchies. So how do you, how would you sort of answer that? Well, a lot of the ruling elites and the people who pull the strings are are not legitimate hierarchs. You know, they're they're people who have usurped a position within that hierarchy. As I, I, I as I understand it, at least. Um, and even those, yeah, the Battenberg people who, family. <laughs> even those people who are actually, you know, in government, in they've been assigned to be kings or queens or prime ministers or something. Even those people, that can only be done in its proper place, where it's recognised that above them is a higher and 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 totally perfect power, and. Again, like, you know, hats off to the Church of England that in its prayers for the sovereign, um, you know, both in the modern prayer books but also and much more potently in the, in the traditional one, um, it's totally recognised that that's, you know, recognising whose servant he is. That's what it says about the king. And, uh, yeah, so I have much sympathy with people who feel like, yeah, hierarchy is the source of... Um, all kinds of suffering and pain in the world and I think that's true when Jesus so wisely said the poor you will always have with you um, I think he was recognising in a, in a deeply realistic way that oppression you'll always have with you you'll always have wicked rulers and you'll always have um, people who, who abuse or usurp their position but I don't think that I think saying as a response to that well we'd be better off with no hierarchy at all. One is folly because you can't have that. Um, even within the world, let alone outside of it, obviously, you, you, you cannot escape the actual rule of, of God. Um, but two, whatever alternative you get reduces to the same thing. You can be as frustrated as you want with power and oppression and ultimately hierarchy. You, you just can't avoid it. You're going you're to get it one way or another. And I, I'm in great sympathy with your, you know, I am I am among that listenership who feels hard done by, you know, when I see the various ways in which extraordinarily powerful people are screwing up the world and the financial system and all kinds of things. And but I I think I don't I can't conclude as a result. Therefore, hierarchy is bad. I think hierarchy is inevitable. The thing that we ought to be praying and longing for is is for good rulers and authorities, which is precisely why the Apostle Paul enjoins Christians to pray that they be able to live peaceful and quiet lives. I think it's saying, basically, you know, that you that you wouldn't be oppressed is something that's a right a right and necessary thing to pray for because, yeah, hierarchy in a broken world doesn't work out so well all the time, but you don't have another choice, and um, there is a, there is a top of the tree. And that top of the tree is uh, Lord, the Lord, our governor. And yeah, he doesn't miss a trick of any of those things. I think that's yeah. the best I've got. Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm cool with that part of it anyway. Good. 
he definitely he definitely has got our back. Ultimately, and and he and he wins. I I, I that's why I, I I do feel sorry for the. Um, I, I keep saying this. I do feel, feel sorry for the Satanists and the fallen angels. You know, the the, the 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 team that the people who've chosen to back them. It's like backing. I don't know. I don't know much about football, but backing a team that's not very good against a team. Yeah, yeah. That is, it's like you, you decide to, to start sporting football, and you immediately pick somebody who's already going to be relegated. And yeah, it is like that. Yeah. I mean, I think. Um, What's Toby Young's football team called? That that one, like, <laughs> like, like like supporting them. Uh, QPR, isn't it? That his, QPR, his, yeah. The um, yeah. One of the striking things about the the, the role of the, the demons in God's salvation is what their involvement of it is a complete um, own goal. Like it is is truly self defeating. So various people are described in the Gospels as responsible for Jesus's death. Right. The um, obviously the soldiers who actually crucified him, the people who handed him over to be crucified. Pontius Pilate in a way he was crucified under Pontius Pilate but also Satan himself is is regarded as you know involved in it it talks about how Satan entered into Judas to you know do the deed which handed Jesus over to be to be crucified I've always thought about that it's like did he have any idea what was going to happen you know did he really think (laughs) did he really think it was a good idea to kill God's son and that there wasn't some kind of what C.S. Lewis calls deeper magic that that was going to complete not only undo that work but you know, make it the cause of his own destruction. And there's a certain just remarkable, like almost laughable hubris to it that's saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to pursue this line of trying to destroy God's son and uh, I'm sure it's going to work out. And actually, when, yeah. you, when you start what, tracing... What could possibly go wrong? What could... Exactly, it turns out it was... Uh, uh, everything could go wrong from there. Do you think, going back to that line that we, we, we haven't quite finished discussing, um, out of the mouth of very babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength, um, that, that that might have still the enemy and the avenger. Do you think that's another example of the Psalms being prophetic? Do you think that is a reference to, to the Christ child? Uh, yes, I think it, it can't just be a reference to Jesus because um, it speaks about multiple you know plural babes and sucklings yeah. um, but I think I think it is sort of primarily a reference to him and I think it only really makes sense when when once we see what God is doing um, in sending his son as a, as a tiny baby and before that as a single cell um, it, it's saying that oh Lord our governor you are s- so much greater than the things in this world that you've actually set things up so that the the very weakest uh, are the the means by which you overthrow what appears to be the mightiest. And I think that's how that, once you start to see that and plug that into the rest of the psalm, because let's face it, the rest of the psalm doesn't talk about enemies and avengers and stuff, but here it does talk about it. You realise that 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 same kind of topsy-turvy, first shall be last, um, you know, the older shall serve the, the younger, the older shall serve the younger motif, which you get throughout the scriptures, um, is also one that applies to on the like cosmic scale. So the angels, if if we understand Genesis one correctly, were the first things to be created. Well, at least before the, the things of the earth, and man, humankind, was the the last thing to be created. Um, and the weakest of the humankind is a babe and a suckling. And yet, it's through those very things, the weakest things, uh, that God has seen fit to 
to overthrow what appears to be the mightiest things. And yeah, that is actually what's going on in verse 5, um, when it says, Thou madest him lower than the angels to crown him with glory and worship. It's actually saying, yeah, humanity has been set, has was previously set lower than the angels. And how low can you go? You can go as low as being a tiny baby, and then you can be, go as low as being crucified. And, and yet it's by means of that very thing, that very weakness, in, in the case of that verse 2, in the infancy of Christ, it's a, by means of those things that um, God has in fact turned things over, uh, kind of flipped it all around. So I think it is talking about exactly what you, what you, were, yeah, what you were mentioning there. It's saying, it, it's a Christmas verse actually, and there aren't many Christmas verses around. Uh, as uh, jobbing pastors and preachers realise, but it is a Christmas verse because it's saying um, that ultimately the means by which the powerful are overthrown is a baby. Have you ever come across the poem um, by Robert Southwell, which is, uh, it's only half of a poem actually, but it's called This Little Babe. No. So it's a great, I mean, Robert Southwell was a Jesuit priest in the 16th century. And those guys, much as I am a Protestant, but those guys were like proper boys' own heroes, going around hiding in people's houses and they were being hunted down by mad, sadistic um, witch hunters and stuff. And uh, But Robert Southwell, although he spent almost all of his life in um, like a Jesuit training house in France, you know, English was a language he probably didn't actually know that well. He wrote some amazingly punchy uh very very Anglo-Saxon poetry and um, I'm not going to read it all because it will it'd be too much but there's a, a Christmas poem of his that's, that has this idea of the baby as um, uh, a combatant really this little babe so few days old is come to rifle Satan's fold all hell doth at his presence quake though he himself for cold doth shake for in this weak unarmed wise the gates of hell he will surprise. And I think it is what that idea of surprise, coming back to what I was saying about why did the devil try and kill the Son of God? Was that a really good idea? You know, it does seem that in the blindness of the, the enemies of God who said, No, I'm not I will not serve God, I will not bow the knee to what he says I must bow the knee to. Yeah, it was actually a surprise. You know, they they thought God's gonna fight fire with fire and power with power. But God actually fights power with weakness. And, um, you know, kind of judo style flips them. Yeah, that's totally it. I think that it's, it's something that people underestimate about Christianity. That, um, uh, what's the guy, the, the mixed martial arts fighter who's, who's, um, who's converted to Islam, you know, what's his name? The guy Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate, exactly. And, you know, he said, his sort of rationale for choosing Islam over Christianity is that Christianity is just not, not hard enough, you know, it's not, it's not defending itself properly. And I'm thinking, there is actually nothing harder than the serial martyrdom that takes place throughout the history of, of, of Christianity, starting with Christ himself. You know, you've got to have bigger balls than anyone to be able to, to prepare, prepare to do that on the, on the basis of an afterlife. A, you know, on on a on a kind of an act of faith. Yeah. Um, people don't get that at all. And it's because they don't. Yeah, they don't see that. 
God just likes turning things upside down. Like he does, you know, he that he casts down the mighty from their thrones, and um, that's, he just does it. You read the Bible; he just does it again and again, and exalts the humble and weak. Put down the mighty from their seat. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Paul, I, I think we've we, I think we've covered off Psalm eight pretty well there. I've, I think I've we've, gone, we've gone deep. Yeah, it's been nice. To talk well, it's about. good. No, do you know what? I, I I always enjoy these these chats because even though I recite these psalms in my head every day, um, when I have these chats, they always illuminate the psalms for me. I learn new things about them. Um, well, so good. I'm glad. You. I mean, there's this you know a practically limitless amount to learn about it, and it is you know I've every time I reflect on it, I see something slightly different and. Uh, that's just remarkable that a text could be that rich. It's also really good. It's 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 like a form of of, of, of therapy for me. It's like it's like when I sat when I sit down with with somebody who is literate and one can have a good chat about classic literature or, or whatever. In the same way, there aren't that many opportunities to to really grapple with the details of of, of scripture. Except when I get a you know a tame vicar on or similar tame hope <laughs> tame vicar that's the best thing I've been called all day. <laughs> well, I wish you I wish you good luck in your quest to find uh, a parish which is worthy of you. Well, I think you know I'm about to come to the end of my time as a curate, and I have I'm you know 99 percent sure that I will not be carrying on as a minister in the Church of England, um, which is you know I fully intend to carry on as a minister so. Perhaps watch this space for, for you know. Well, yeah. What what are, what are the options out of interest? If if if, if you can't find a place in the CV, where where can you well, go? Well, I think the hard thing is, you know, the, among the kind of evangelical churches of in England, most of them are Baptist churches or churches that are Baptistic in that they only uh, baptize infants, uh, adults rather than infants as well. And I think you know, what what. I, I definitely think that it's right and necessary and good to baptize babies of people who are Christians. You know, that's part of you know, part of God's covenant and His plan. So, like, that's a, that's something I'm pretty set on. So, yeah, your options are pretty limited. There are various sort of breakaway Anglican churches, uh, Presbyterian churches. Um, yeah, there are plenty of things out there which, in a way, are the Church of England, but better um, because although the Church of England has a huge depth of it is the deep church in in England for sure. Um, yeah, there are other other Anglican options or Presbyterian options even better uh, out there, which are. But yeah, there are loads of them, so it's it's, it's a big thing. I f- I feel very kind of in two minds about it because I was writing for our parish magazine the other day and uh, observing that there had been a church here that on this very site of St Leonard's for like eight hundred years or something, and if there's another eight hundred years left in the world, there probably still will be. It will go through its crazy ups and downs and, you know, various different buildings. And it's hard to imagine what the world in 800 years would be like if, the, if there is another 800 years. Um, but, yeah, there will probably be people worshipping Jesus here then. And it feels like that's, that feels like a, a significant thing to leave behind. And yet, you know, I can leave it behind. It's, you know, I, I'm just one small guy in a small part of the world. Like, just get on, get on with what I've got to I've been called to do in my life and let God sort out the rest of it. Well, I was going to say, God, God will, has got your back. He'll, he'll, yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, yeah, he does. Well, you know he has. 
that's that's the deal. <laughs> anyway, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, and and you've been a, a delightful guest and guide through through Sarmate. Is there anything? Do you have a website or a anything you? Or? Do I have anything to promote? Oh, not really. I mean, uh, if people, you know were struck by anything I say or they're in Exeter and they want to know what church they could go to because they hate the C of E or something well I can you know I can point you in the right direction uh, so just email me paul.sutton at stleonards.church um, and if you really I mean if you want to find out more about um, you know if, if you go on YouTube and search for Paul Sutton St. Leonard's I'm sure you can find various things on there but really nobody's going to want that so uh, uh, I, I give that as a, a vague possibility okay well, um, and, and viewers and listeners, I, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Um, if you want to support me, please, um, Substack is, is my, my favourite place at the moment. I think that that's attracting more and more. It, it's, just, it's just more user-friendly than, than the, other, the other channels. Uh, you can buy me a coffee. But maybe even more important than either of those is spread the word. I'd, I'd love it you to share with, with Christian and non-Christians alike. Um, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like my psalm series to take off because I think it's, well... I enjoy doing it and I think it's good. <laughs> Thanks again, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.